You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. So we're continuing right along with the Minor Prophets. As you were coming in and you got your packet from Joe, it had the Bible Project picture. And if you are online and you obviously don't have that printout with you, you can feel free to go to bibleproject.com or YouTube and watch. They summarize the book in about six minutes, sometimes less. And so it's a really great way if you're like, I just... I don't know, need something more or want some explanation even to the graphic that we're giving you. Um, otherwise, we encourage you, color it in, put it on your, put it on a pegboard, do whatever you'd like to do. But the idea is we want to make sure that we're helping people connect with the story that God has given us in a variety of ways. So whether you're here in person or online, welcome. We're going to jump into the book of Joel. And the reason that we are going cover to cover through the Bible, just in case you weren't here or this is your first Sunday with us, we'll get you up to speed, um, is because it's really important as we're reading these individual books to see them in the greater picture or the meta narrative of the whole book. God gave us the entirety of the Bible, and so we want to make sure that we're not just kind of sucking information out of one small bit and using it and molding it to fit us but that we're actually reading it in light of the entirety of what God gave us because through that, we can have a proper understanding and actually apply it the way that we're supposed to. If you missed, therefore, any of our talks and you're feeling a little bit lost, you can find them on YouTube or Facebook or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Uh, But today, in the prophetic books, we're going to be here for a while. There's 12 minor prophets, so we're only on week 11 if you're counting down There are 10 more to go after this. And we see a lot of recurring themes throughout them. So even though they're writing at different times, sometimes spans of hundreds of years have passed in between them, they have these reoccurring themes of things like repentance, uh, restorative justice, judgment, and a renewed world or creation. There's always a bit of hope, even through all the bleakness that they are sharing. Um, And what we find within each of these themes, which are critical to understanding what God's talking about when he's talking to Israel here, is that God has a very strong opinion or feeling about the way that people were responding to what the prophets were sharing. So one of the things that they directly challenge Israel repetitively on is that your passive attitude towards injustice and oppression is not something that God is willing to overlook Neither will he over, nor, <laughs> nor will he overlook your blatant participation in injustice. The prophetic books were not just these nice little bits of wisdom, which we'll read a little bit further down the road when we get to Psalms and Proverbs. The prophetic books were calls to action. There is an expectation as we were hearing them for the first time, if we're Israel, or we as its readers today, are going to look at what God is saying and do something that there is an actual onus on us when we read through them, not to just say, oh, this is interesting, but to say, God, you are challenging me right now. And so last week, Perla, um, well, actually, let me read a passage from Isaiah first that highlights this, and then we'll talk about the question from Perla. But Isaiah 11, or excuse me, Isaiah 1, starting in verse 11 and going to about 17, it kind of reiterates this heart of who God is and why this matters to him. He says, what makes you think I want all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? Stop bringing me meaningless gifts and the incense of your offerings disgust me. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look, though you offer many prayers. I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. 
Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight and give up your evil ways. And here's that challenge piece within the prophets. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of the widows. There is an expectation on us that we are not going to just read this and think, oh, that was a nice mini-series within the bigger series, but that God is going to give us very specific things that we are called to step into as a response to what he's saying. So last week, Perla challenged us, and she said, what injustice fires you up or burdens your heart? And so I hope you had time to think about it this week, but if not, I'm going to pause for five minutes and let you talk to the people around you about it because we are not going to just be hearers of the word. We are going to be doers. And so even if you hadn't had a chance to think about the question, you now have five minutes. So get with a group of two to three people. I'm going to start the timer on my watch, and in five minutes we'll come back and keep going. All right, you can carry your conversations to the cafe after. We are going to start every Sunday like this, so I'm going to give you new, a new question, if you will. I dare not call it homework for those of you with PTSD from school, um, but the reality is we want to leave you with a reflection question, so it's on the bottom of your bulletin. You don't have to worry about writing it down, but the follow-up question I'm going to pose is, how are you resourced to engage with that injustice or injustices that burden you? Maybe it's time, finances, connections, personality, etc. What I want you to do this week is think about how God has specifically wired you to step into those things that most set your heart on fire with him. And with that, we're then going to transition to Joel. So Joel's fun. He's a really interesting guy. He's sort of an unknown. Nobody knows when Joel actually wrote what he wrote to people because there's no identifying time or king put into his scripture. So you're reading it and it's like, I, we're not entirely sure. Could have been as early as Amos. They could have easily been counterparts. Could have been as late as Ezra and Nehemiah, so post-exile when they're back in the land. Um, but either way, Joel was very well educated. It's very apparent that he had an extensive reading of the other parts of the Old Testament, so the Torah, Psalms, different things that were written because of the way that he doesn't do something that all the prophets do. He doesn't include a list of all the ways that Israel has failed. So I guess that's kind of nice, right? You're like, oh, we've got all these prophets that are telling us how horrible we are. Joel doesn't do that. He focuses instead on the consequences and the response that should come out of the message that he's sharing. He figures, I don't need to reiterate your transgressions. You already know them, which is true, right? If we do something wrong, do we need somebody to keep reminding us that we've done it wrong? No, we remember it pretty vividly. In fact, it's hard not to shake it from our memory. Um, so instead, he focuses again on all of these consequences that are going to happen as a result of what Israel's been doing. He doesn't say what they've been doing outright because he's like, you already know that. And then at the end of each of the sections where he talks about the consequences, he says, this is the way that would best, that you should best respond, which is to repent. He says, this is the best way in any situation, if you're having this kind of breakdown of relationship with God, that you as human beings should turn around and go and do. Um, but let's start with the first theme, which is this consequence theme. And it's summarized in Joel as the day of the Lord. Um, and we're going to do a bit of a roundabout way to talk about Joel this morning, because 
So much of his book focuses on this idea of the day of the Lord as coming against Israel because of what they have done. And he is neither the first nor the last author in scripture to use this phrase. And so what I'd actually rather do is look at the arc of the day of the Lord as it is written throughout scripture, because we find it start in Genesis, roughly, um, very firmly in Exodus, and then end in Revelation. So it is part of this overarching story about God actually pursuing humanity. So starting in Genesis, God creates a beautiful, good, whole, healthy world. And one of the characteristics that we don't often talk about but was very much a part of it was that it was a nonviolent world. Rob is excited, Rob's online today, because everyone was vegan. <laughs> one of the distinctives was that nothing died. There was no killing of animals. There was no hamburgers. There's no barbecues. I'm so sorry. Everybody was in harmony. All of creation was in harmony with one another. And so it was really lovely, honestly, to imagine never being in competition or conflict or having anything challenging because you're just at peace. That sounds great. We can't even envision that because our world is so far from it that we're like total peace. Or some of you are like maybe... You're worried about the hamburger thing. Don't worry, God has called all things good now, so I'm sure we'll have hamburgers in heaven. Um, not sure, actually. I have no idea, but you can pray about that if you're really worried about it. So it doesn't, doesn't last. Turn on the news this morning. Clearly, this is not the, the state of things today. What happens is humanity is tempted, but what they're tempted with is a really specific thing. It's not just this idea that humans were like, tempted to not love God. They were tempted by the desire to define good and evil for themselves. They wanted to be their own judges. They wanted the right to say, I will choose what is good. I will choose what is bad. I will make up the rules for the world. And when they did that, they plunged the world into violence. Because what happens when you do that is you're running from a place of selfishness. And if we are all self-centered, making decisions about what we think is good and we think is bad, we're ultimately going to do things that hurt the people around us. Because what my definition of good is, is probably going to cost the person next to me. Whether I'm driving in a car and I decide I need to get in that lane and they're there so I cut them off, or I decide that I want to... Um, I want the promotion at work, and so I'm going to steal ideas from my coworker, or they're a greedy landlord. I mean, think about all of the times we see this impacting us today, even. People deciding for themselves what's good for them and how it hurts us. You see this with drunk drivers. There's accidents that happen all the time because somebody made a choice that is selfish. This climaxes in Genesis 11. So Genesis 3, this happens. Genesis 11, we get to the story about a tower, uh, the Tower of Babel. And basically what God says in that whole story is that humanity has gotten so bad because they've so redefined evil as good and good as evil that things are just a mess. And so what happens is he scatters humanity throughout the world to try and mitigate the badness of us all being together, doing terrible things. And what what evolves from that moment is that Babylon throughout the rest of the book becomes a symbol of, of humanity's choice or corporate rejection of God. 
Basically, it becomes a symbol of humanity having decided, I want to define for myself what is good and what is bad. And so briefly, like where we are roughly in the prophets, briefly, the actual Babylonian empire exists. So they don't get confused when you find the actual physical empire, Nebuchadnezzar, all those folks. That was a real, that was Babylon. But Throughout the rest of scripture, you're going to hit points where they talk about Babylon and it, it either hasn't ever existed or it has long since fallen, like when you get to Revelation. And it's a little confusing and it's because God's not talking about the physical empire. He's talking about this Babylon, which is a symbol of humanity's corporate rejection or our desire to be God, really. Our desire to define what is good and what is bad. If you fast forward from Genesis 3 just a little bit, you basically go t- chapters 12 to 50 are like a second story, if you will. And we jump back into this storyline in Exodus when we get to Pharaoh and Israel and their oppression as they're living under a foreign power as slaves. And in this, Pharaoh has created this society of violence and slavery and oppression and greed where he is in total control as as essentially a dictator. um, And he's doing that and maintaining control and building his empire on the backs of Israel. And he's so redefined good and evil and and evil is good that things are terrible for some and only good for a very small number. And it's within this story that Egypt is described as the new Babylon. Egypt is described as having so redefined and so tried to be their own gods that they are the new Babylon. And what God does in this story is he gives a taste to the world of how he is going to rescue humanity from Babylon, from the spirit of Babylon. And so what he does is he, it's almost like a micro story that becomes a macro story. So it's like this is the prequel to what God is going to do in order to set us free from this desire to be gods of our own. And so what happens is the plagues come against Egypt. If you are confused by that and think that God is this like crazy punitive force, please go back to um, a message that I gave last February about the plagues to clarify that. Um, But what happens is he brings these, there's plagues that come against Egypt, and ultimately on the last plague, Egypt is swallowed up by the very death and violence that they have been living under by their own desires and choices. And in that moment, it becomes catalytic because what happens is darkness comes, the firstborn of Egypt die, and then from that point, Pharaoh says, fine, I give up. Israel, you're allowed to leave, get out of our land, and they go. Um, And so the Hebrews call this the day. And they've commonly celebrated as Passover. They still celebrate it every single year. But this is where the day of the Lord concept emerges. And it's this idea that the day of the Lord is how God is going to set humanity free from the spirit of Babylon. And he gives you a, a trailer or a teaser in Egypt of what it is going to look like. He basically says, I'm going to liberate you by letting the spirit of Babylon or that spirit of violence and oppression and evil swallow itself up. It's going to actually self-destroy when I intervene because I will liberate and it will come after me and, and it'll eat itself up or swallow itself up. Like the idea of Pharaoh getting swallowed by the Red Sea. And so where's Joel in all of this? <laughs> I promise we'll talk about him today. We're going to him right now. So this is the beginning of the ark. So if you, I think, Hannah, there's a picture of that 
storyline um, or the little arch. So we get to Genesis. The next kind of piece to the storyline is the prophets. And what happens here um, is that everything from Genesis to the prophets, the day of the Lord in Israel's mind continues to be like a liberation event. So they have an expectation that any time they are being threatened or oppressed by someone, that God will bring another day of the Lord to set them free because that's who he is. He's God the liberator. But when we get to the prophets, the focus of the day of the Lord actually changes because the prophets begin to tell Israel, this isn't so good, guys. You've become the new Babylon. You have so redefined evil as good and good as evil that you have created a violent, oppressive society. We are supposed to be God's people. We are supposed to look different than the rest of the world. And instead, we have fully embraced all of that selfishness, all of that greed, all of that corruption. And it has broken us. It's, it's not a good place to live. Only for the elite who have power is this pleasant. For everyone else, it, the society is being built on their backs. And so as a result, the day of the Lord is no longer a safeguard that God's going to protect us from oppression. Now we are on the other end of the day of the Lord where the Lord's going to bring his judgment against us, where the spirit of Babylon is going to wreak havoc against us because we have been oppressive like Egypt. And so Joel's message fits right in here. In Joel 2, verse 11, it says, the Lord is at the head of the column and he leads them with a, shart, a shout. He's talking about this like mighty army. He says, and it's in reference to locusts, which we'll get to in a sec, but this is his mighty army and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? And this comes after he has given two parallel poems to start out his very short book. It's only three chapters. You can go home and read it probably in 15 minutes if you're really gunning through. In chapter one, the first poem runs from verses one to 12, and he's talking about what's happening in Israel when he's writing. This is the most clarifying event we have of all of Joel's life. And there's basically two things. There's a severe drought, and there is a plague of locusts. And you can imagine how devastating this would be for an agrarian society. There's not a lot growing because of the drought. And what is growing is being absolutely devoured by locusts. So there's nothing left for the people. And as an agrarian society, they're not just like, oh, call up Walmart, get an extra shipment, bring it in. Instead, what's happening is they are falling into further and further economic despair. People are starving, and they get to the point where they don't even have enough to make sacrifices at the temple. That's how bleak it has gotten. There isn't even enough to bring to celebrate and worship the Lord. <clears throat> and this parallels the plagues that we see happening in Egypt. This is a direct reference point where he is saying, look at what's happening it's the same thing we saw happen in Egypt, Israel. Wake up. We are the oppressors and the violent. We have become what we hated. And the Lord's hand of protection is removed from us. We've made our allegiance to the spirit of Babylon. We've chosen to be our own judges. And now we are reaping the consequences of that. In the second chapter, verses 1 to 11, he gives another poem, or he shares another poem, about another locust invasion. 
But this one is focused on the future. It's not currently happening. He says, this is something like I'm foreseeing. It'll happen eventually. And this is another locust plague. But what's different about it is Joel uses war language instead. So now the locusts are a mighty army and they're coming with violence and they're led by God. And it sounds really overwhelming and violent and destructive. It's so intense that the earth quakes and the sky goes dark. And what this reminds Israel of is the plague of darkness at the end of the 10 plagues in Egypt where the land is covered, the firstborn die, and it becomes a cataclysmic event that launches Israel to freedom, the first Passover. And so what Joel is actually doing is he, I don't even know if he realized it to be honest, but he is envisioning a second Passover event that will end not in Israel's ultimate destruction, but will ultimately end in Israel's rescue and restoration, which is really hugely important. And Joel 2, verses 25 to 26, he, he talks about the swarming locusts, and he says, I will give back what you lost. And going down to verse 26, once again, you will have all the food you want, and you will praise the Lord, your God, who does these miracles for you. Never again will buy people be disgraced. And this isn't fanciful language. This is his promise of ultimate restoration for humanity that God is hinting at through Joel, whether Joel ever understood it or not. And the storyline of the prophets carries on. It doesn't end for a really long time. In fact, what the the prophets have been saying all along, that is the storyline in Israel that Jesus is born into. This is what he is understanding, this, the day of the Lord coming against them, because Israel continues to be under oppressive leadership. They continue to be, they went from Assyria to uh, Babylon. Now, under Jesus, they're, they're under the oppressive leadership of Rome. And what makes Jesus so beautiful and incredible, we, we recognize this because we celebrate him, that's the reason we're all here today, um, is that he is the perfect fulfillment of everything Adam was supposed to be and everything Israel was supposed to be. And so if we look at his story, Jesus goes into the wilderness very early on before he's the Jesus doing all the miracles and stuff. And he absolutely refuses to bow to the spirit of Babylon. He has this temptation in the wilderness where essentially the enemy comes, the spirit of Babylon comes and it says, you know, you can use your power for all of the things. You can be rich. You can be famous. You can be, you can have the whole world. I'll give you all of my authority and you can be a king here on earth if you reject God. That's the caveat. You have to reject God, bow to me, and you can have all the things. And Jesus is the only human being to ever say no. I will not bow my knee to anyone other than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I will not take the right on myself to define good and evil, to be my own God, but I will surrender entirely to the Lord, to the King, to God Almighty. And so what happens is he then gets to go and move throughout the land and operate under the authority of God, unlike anyone else ever has. And what does that look like? It looks like dismantling Babylon. What does he do? Literally, that's like not a rhetorical question. What does he do? (laughs) He heals people. He rises from the dead. (laughs) 
He loves us. He saves us from death, Bob, yes. Upside down, yep. And he did it without weapons. Jesus lived, and in, thank you, Barb, excellent transition. He did it as a completely nonviolent person. No military, no war, not even a political cartoon slamming his opposition. He is nonviolent to the end. And so the ultimate showdown between the spirit of Babylon and Jesus comes on the cross. Israel gathers to celebrate the day. They're in Jerusalem for Passover. They're celebrating the original day. And the spirit of Babylon rallies all of its power and really its only weapon, which is death. And it throws it at Jesus through the religious leaders in Pilate. And they bring him to the cross to kill him out of jealousy and rage and spitefulness and animosity. The spirit of Babylon brings all the violence it can muster. And it thinks, I surely have defeated Jesus in this moment. But Jesus knows and remains nonviolent to the end by letting himself be murdered on the cross because he recognizes that the spirit of Babylon, <clears throat> which is selfish and violent and oppressive, cannot defeat the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is utterly selfless, utterly loving, and utterly nonviolent. And so it lets violence kill him. And in that moment, in the grave, comes up and rises from the dead and says, just kidding. The love of God is unconquerable. You tried your best, but all you did was destroy yourself because I have just proven that you are finite. You have an end. Evil does not get to play forever because goodness and love and the grace of God is always stronger and will always surpass it. And I love how beautiful that was. But thinking about Joel's passage and his envisioning this moment, this is the second Passover that he saw. Whether he realized it or not, Joel says distinctly, when this day comes, it will come with the earth quaking and the sky going dark. And what does Matthew tell us in 27? The earth shook so much that tombs broke open, dead people came back to life, which was a little addition to Joel's part. But the sky literally goes dark for three hours on the, on the day that Jesus is murdered on the cross. And later, Peter affirms that this indeed was the moment that Joel was talking about when the Spirit of God comes and descends on his followers as they're waiting in Jerusalem. And he says, Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. The second Passover that Joel envisioned was Jesus. He becomes the sacrificial lamb and by his own decision to be completely surrendered to God and to give up his entire life for humanity, defeats the spirit of Babylon. And essentially what he does is he forges a path for humanity back to the Garden of Eden. And if you're thinking of very little garden, don't do that. Uh, instead, Jesus, through his death on the cross, forges a way for creation to return to the selfless, nonviolent goodness that God intended. And we're not there yet. If Hannah, you pop up that next piece of the ark, there's a period of time between Jesus and Revelation. We are here, if Google were going to help us out with that. Where Revelation is when we see, John has this image of a bloody Jesus arriving on a horse with a sword 
in his mouth. That's a weird image. You're like, did Jesus join the circus? If none of you have ever thought that, then that's just how my brain works. But I'm like, sword in his mouth. Like, that seems very dangerous, Jesus. Um, it is a symbol of Jesus having returned the right to be the judge of what is good and what is evil to God. Because he is the only human being who did not try to take that for himself, but always trusted God to be the definer of good and evil. And so we have this arc of the day of the Lord that goes throughout Scripture, beginning roughly in Genesis, certainly in Exodus, and ending in Revelation, where God says humanity has tried so badly to take the right to be the definers of good and evil. We want to be our own judges. We can definitively say that in this room today. If somebody does us wrong, we want the right to be mad or to be whatever. We like to get frustrated. I don't know if we like it, but we do. We want to be justified. We want to define what is good and evil for ourselves. But when we do that, that makes us violent people. Then the only way for that violence to be broken is by God himself coming against it as Jesus, both God and human, not bowing to the spirit of Babylon, but by living nonviolently, stealing all of its power back, if you will, and restoring it to God alone, the only one who should ever define good and evil, the only one who can rightly define good and evil. And as Jesus gives that authority back to God in Revelation, he permanently expels the spirit of Babylon. And what happens after that? The world returns to full goodness and grace. The new creation, new Jerusalem, where all that nonviolence, all that selfishness, all that greed and corruption is gone, and we get to live the way God always intended. It's beautiful, and it's incredible. And it's amazing to me because I was like reading through Joel, and I'm like, this is so funny. It's this teeny tiny little book of three chapters tied into the entire story of Scripture. The entire story which is why it is so important for us to read scripture in context of one another because all of these books work together to point to what God is doing. Back in Egypt, he says, heads up, you guys can't break this yourself. You cannot become unoppressed on your own. Only I can do that and I will do that. I am planning on coming, which means here today, we can definitively say evil and injustice have an end date. The pain and suffering you are experiencing in your life has an end date because God has taken authority over all of it. We don't necessarily know when we will see the end date, only that it exists because Jesus has conquered it. That is hope. That is where hope comes from. That is where joy comes from. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We rest in the fact that he is conqueror, and so that gives us hope. So let me land our plane for today. <clears throat> what do we do with this? It's very interesting Bible knowledge. I hope it makes you excited because I like the Bible things like this. But the reality is if we don't actually do something with it, then it's just an interesting message that you'll forget within the next 24 hours, maybe the next 24 minutes. Joel, like Hosea and all of the other prophets, basically say to Israel, you have taken for granted your relationship with God. You feel entitled you think you deserve his protection and his goodness regardless of how you've been behaving in the relationship. You think no matter what you do, God's going to bless you. And heads up, that's not true. That's not how it works. 
Blessings from the Lord, freedom from God only exists within a genuine relationship with him. And the only way you can have a genuine relationship with God is through surrender. The word that we find in scripture more commonly is repentance. It's this idea, quite literally, it's the Hebrew teshuva, means to return. And it's this idea that we've been straying from something or we've looked away from what our primary focus should be. And so what Joel says is, this is what the Lord says to me. Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with feasting, feasting, come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't feast yet. Don't tear your clothes in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish us. He says, the only thing you can do is come home, which is ironically the exact same language of Jesus in Luke 15 when he talks about the, parab- or the, prodigal of the, par- the parable of the prodigal son. Ooh, no more battery on that guy. <laughs> Hi, online folks. I've certainly gone a shade darker now. I just got a tan. Um, <clears throat> the only way we can really be in relationship with God and experience freedom is to come home. And it's the same thing that Paul, or excuse me, Peter later tells us in Acts 2.21. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The message is the same throughout the entirety of scripture. The only way humanity can be free from the spirit of Babylon is through the work that Jesus has done. But the only way we can live into that freedom is to surrender ourselves back to the king of kings. It's basically to take the throne off your head where you no longer decide that what is good where you no longer get to be the judge and the ruler and the authority over your own life, but you give that crown back to Jesus and you bow to him and say, I give it back to you. That is what the storyline of the Bible is, is us giving our crowns back to God, the ones that humanity stole from him in Genesis chapter three, and saying, we acknowledge that you are the king. It's a factual thing. Again, it's not something that we have to convince the world of. Like there's this long-held belief that Christians have to suddenly convince people that Jesus is king. We don't. He is. He rose from the dead. The choice is, do we bow to him now or do we wait till the end? But the reality is we can have the freedom and experience new creation now. We don't have to wait for the new Eden at the, when we die. We don't have to wait to be set free from addiction, to be set free from pain, to be set free from trauma later. God wants to work that out now while we live here so that we can enjoy heaven and we can enjoy the reality of the goodness of God and living under the authority of God today. And that is the challenge that Joel puts before his people and it's the same challenge that exists. I can't change it and I don't need to. We are invited to lay down our crowns. And whether you have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior or you have not, it's the same today for all of us to say, God, I keep trying to pick that crown back up because I want authority out over my own life and it's not mine to take. My, when I try and control my own life, it's not gonna work. But when you control life, that's where freedom is found. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come, but that same invitation of Joel is the same invitation I want to make to you guys today and to myself. Can we this morning give God 
back what is due to him, which is the right to define good and evil? Can we take the crown off of our own heads and say, Lord, this is not for me to be doing. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You judge from the beginning to the end. I recognize my place before you as a created being. And when I bow my knee to you, that is where I find freedom. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Yeah, we wait on you this morning, Lord, to... Yeah, to challenge us 